Welcome to Not Your Father's Data Center Podcast, brought to you by Compass Data Centers. We build for what's next. Now here's your host, Raymond Hawkins. All right, welcome again to another edition of Not Your Father's Data Center. Uh, I'm Raymond Hawkins, Chief Revenue Officer at Compass Data Centers and your host. Today we are joined by Fred Thiel, CEO of Marathon Digital Holdings. He is uh, talking to us today from London. Fred, uh, good afternoon. How are you, sir? I'm very well, thanks. How are you? Awesome. We're glad to have you. We're really grateful that uh, you are willing to talk to us today about uh, cryptocurrency. Uh, certainly uh, a unique uh, uh, topic and something that's on a lot of people's minds and fascinating to hear your history. So we'll get into that. Love hearing from our listeners. Thank you so much for all of you downloading us wherever you get your podcast. And we're excited to talk with Fred. So Fred, thank you so much for joining us. And uh, let's let's get on to hearing your story and, and, and your history. I'd love to hear a little bit of your personal background, where you're from, where, where you call home today, and then we'll dive right into crypto. Uh, sure. So firstly, I appreciate being on, on your program. You know, I've spent 40 years in the technology industry. I am uh, European by background. Parents are Swedish, born in France, educated partially in France, the US, the UK, uh, and Sweden. have always been lover of technology. Um, father and stepmom were both bankers, so uh, sort of ate, drank, and slept banking all my life, uh, especially uh, sort of my more formative teen years when I lived in London. Um, my first technology job was actually writing software in a bank uh, in London when I was in high school. And Back in those days, uh, this is uh, kind of uh, late 70s, you walked into a bank branch in London to cash a check and they still hand wrote in a ledger your transaction. Uh, no terminals, no computers at the, at the branch level. Um, so I got to live the uh, archaic old fashioned way uh, all the way through to the modern uh, developments. And nowadays uh, with cryptocurrency, the disruption of those old systems. But uh, growing up, I had the benefit of uh, really understanding the difficulties that exist in moving money around the planet. And um, one of the things that my uh, stepmom, uh, one of the roles that she had was as a senior economist for the uh, OECD. Uh, and one of her roles there was actually to help put together the framework, the regulatory framework for countries in the East Bloc in Europe when they were going to come into the OECD and then into the EU. So securities regulations, banking regulations, lending, et cetera. So sort of grew up in that environment. And in working with software in banks, you know, I got to touch things like the SWIFT system, which is how money is moved around between banks, which, by the way, was a technology in the 70s that they thought was kind of cool because it operated using telexes as opposed to, you know, the internet didn't exist then. So it was the early way of kind of, uh, if you would, uh, electronic data exchange between banks. And when you think about it, what banks really do is they settle balances between each other. And that's exactly the way the blockchain works with Bitcoin. You use it as a settlement network. That's how Satoshi Nakamura designed it. It was meant to be a settlement network. And so Bitcoin and the blockchain is the perfect tool to use for transforming our financial systems to make them much more efficient, much more secure, because nobody can uh, corrupt the data once it's there. There's no way to hold the data ransom, if you would. 
And so uh, it's really a perfect solution for that. So uh, I was first exposed to Bitcoin and blockchain uh, a number of years ago and uh, got very involved in uh, looking at uh, facilitating trading of Bitcoin, built a project to build an exchange to operate in Switzerland, and then built an OTC trading uh, desk in a company in Liechtenstein. And I joined the board of Marathon um, in 2018 when a, a longtime uh, friend of mine, uh, who at the time was had just become CEO of the company, needed to reconstitute the board and figure out how they were going to take the company uh, and do something new. And they decided to go into Bitcoin mining. And so Marathon uh, transitioned from being a patent company that collected patents and prosecuted patents to beginning to do Bitcoin mining. And it was a, a long process that required the company to you know, recapitalize itself. And uh, Mariko Komodo, the then CEO and now current executive chairman, did an outstanding job of getting the company out of debt, uh, getting it recapitalized and positioning it to, in sort of mid-2020, place one of the single largest orders with Bitmain for Bitmain ant miners to mine Bitcoin that they'd ever received. Um, and today we're currently in the process of deploying 133,000 miners uh, across sites in North America. Well, that'll keep you busy, 133,000 miners. sure will. But, uh, in multiple sites, I'm assuming, for that kind of volume. Yeah, absolutely. We're, we're doing uh, in uh, across four or five different sites. Yeah, figured. Gotcha. Okay, awesome. Well, that we are super grateful to hear your background. And uh, I, I love the fact that um, you, you make the connection to the SWIFT system and early ability to, to clear transactions, to transfer money, to, to, to operate as that clearinghouse electronically, even in the 70s, and how um, today the blockchain does the same thing. I think that there's a, a thousand ways we could take this conversation. If you don't mind, Fred, I'd love to go back and start with, um, I think I have a firm grip on blockchain, but I'm not sure everybody that listens to us does. And, 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 and then Bitcoin itself, and not just Bitcoin, but all of the digital currencies. Can you talk us through just for two or three minutes, uh, blockchain and what the technology of blockchain is and how it differs from actual uh, cryptocurrency itself? And then uh, follow on to that, then could you get in a little bit into cryptocurrencies themselves? I know you guys are in the business of mining, but can we differentiate those two first as a foundation for our listeners? The blockchain is essentially a chain of linked blocks that each block consists of a certain number of transactions. So let's just say, if you think about a ledger, like your check register, right? If you have a checkbook and you write a bunch of checks, you write them down in your check register at the end of the month, you get a statement from your bank and there's each check, kind of who it was paid to, et cetera, um, and the amount. So those types of transactions, are formed into blocks. Uh, think of it as there's kind of a buffer, a memory pool. All these transactions as they're happening fall into this hopper. And then the underlying software for the blockchain essentially uh, allows miners to do this process of assembling these transactions into blocks. And then you run a mathematical, essentially you do a, a mathematical proof, uh, cryptographic proof on this data and that generates a hash and that hash has to have a certain value to it and if it has the correct value and that value by the way is very dependent on the hash from the block that immediately precedes it as well as the content of the data in the block it's processing 
And when it gets that hash, it then has to uh, be equal to or less than a specific target number that the, uh, the blockchain is looking for. And if you as a miner guess that number correctly, uh, and it's a factoring exercise, uh, if you guess it correctly, you win that block, you publish the block, uh, other nodes validate the block, and then you receive a block reward. And so miners are paid by the blockchain for doing this assembly of transactions, validating them, putting them into blocks, uh, getting the block approved, and then um, moving on to the next block. And so the process of uh, essentially securing the blockchain is what mining is. And miners get paid by the blockchain today about six and a quarter Bitcoin per block that they win. Gotcha. And there are only ever, every block is estimated to take about 10 minutes. So that essentially means that there are little over 2000 blocks a day or 900 Bitcoin issued per day. That's how miners make money. They get paid in, in Bitcoin. A uh, similar process with Ether and Ethereum until they move to proof of stake and any proof of work based blockchain. So the blockchain is the technology and the I, I like the way you said it, the mathematical proof that says, OK, I, there's this um, agreed upon multi-node verified set of, for lack of a better term, questions, mathematical questions. And once you prove that out and fall in the range, and get validated by the network, meaning multiple nodes, I guess, of, of visibility, that then gives you, produces this hash and the block is awarded and then follows with a Bitcoin. Got it. Okay, I, th I think I got it. Um, yeah. I just, okay, understood. And and so as, I, when I think about, the, the, then, so, so, so that bit, or excuse me, that's blockchain and how it marries up to Bitcoin. In the rest of the crypto, which there's a bunch now, how many of them follow that same process, you know, handling a blockchain transaction, and how many of them do it totally differently? Is 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 let, let me ask the question a different way. Is blockchain the best way, and what are other ways that it gets done in the market? Blockchain, think of it as it's really just a process of how do you create a record of data that can't be changed? And you do it by making sure that every block of data is dependent on all the prior blocks before it. So if you have 20 blocks and you go and edit any one block of those 20, uh, then all of the blocks subsequent to that one that you edited will be incorrect right. and invalid. So there's no way to go back and change a block. Now, how you validate blocks can vary. So uh, in the case of the Bitcoin blockchain, you have this process of proof of work that's used. And that's been currently the same process used by Ethereum um, and a variety of other proof of work based networks. Uh, there are other networks that don't use proof of work. They use more of a proof of stake system, which is what Ethereum is moving towards, which instead works on a uh, basis of you stake capital uh, essentially money, in the case of the Ethereum network, Ether, you deposit Ether and you uh, become a stake node, which means you're, you have as many votes as you have the size of your stake. And when you validate a transaction, you say this transaction, this block is correct, you're essentially betting your stake that you're right. And if, uh, you're, if the block that you approved ends up not being correct, then you could lose that stake. So the onus is on you to make sure that that block is properly calculated. It, but it's not done by this 
proof of work methodology where you have millions of computers around the world competing to solve the math proof. Here, it's really, you're just saying, staking your reputation is a way to look at it, that the block is correct. Fred, is the competition, is it about speed or is it almost, uh, for lack of a better term, uh, you know, everyone, you know, 52 different uh, entities got the question right and then it's a drawing or is it just whoever gets there first? Well, so in the case of proof of work, the way the Bitcoin blockchain works is statistically speaking, if you have contributed computing power that represents about 10% of the total compute power of the Bitcoin blockchain, then you should win, in theory, 10% of the blocks. Gotcha. That's the theory. But um, there is a competition to it. It's not, you know, if you have one miner and you plug it in, you're not going to get a fraction of a Bitcoin every day. I understand. Right. I got gotcha. you. You'll get nothing, 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 nothing. And then you might win a block all of a sudden. I got gotcha. you. You get a block gotcha. reward. I see. And so what miners do is miners pool their miners together into what's called a pool. And the pool is what kind of think of it as the general that directs the miners. Okay, go mine this block. You go work on this. You go work on that. And by aggregating uh, and cooperating together, a group of miners in a pool, you then can. Uh, you're a bigger. You have a more hash rate. You're contributing to the overall network. Higher likelihood you're going to win blocks. And the block rewards can be evenly distributed amongst the members in the pool. So the um, large minor entities like Marathon, do you guys participate in pools or do you act essentially as your own because of your ability to deploy at scale? The vast majority of miners, no matter how big, have cooperate with a third party pool. In the case of Marathon, we actually do have our own pool for a multitude of reasons. One, it's a great business to have because when you're a large scale miner, uh, it allows you to optimize what you're doing for the luck algorithms that exist in, in uh, the Bitcoin blockchain. Also, when you're a very large miner, you want to make sure you can really control how your your miners are being directed to mine. And that's why we wanted to own our own pool. Now, we have opened up our pool recently to third parties. And now other miners are starting to join our pool because they love the transparency that we have. We have a third-party public auditor who audits our transactions so that we're issuing out all of the rewards. We're not kind of keeping stuff to ourselves um, and making sure that everybody's getting a fair shake in their process. And most of the pools actually today are um, offshore, many of them in China still, because it's not illegal to operate a pool in China. It's illegal to mine Bitcoin. And so you have Ant Pool and these other pools, that uh, F2, that exist in uh, in China, but uh, the Marathon's Maripool is one of a handful of North American pools. So, so uh, you mentioned earlier that there's about 900 Bitcoin available a day. Um, this is going to open up a subject for me that I want to take a minute or two and go down. And and I don't want to. So, so uh, Stockholm uh, School of Economics, economics degree, uh, ch child of an OECD uh, economist. So, so I do not want to uh, ha have a uh, economics competition because I will lose. I will. I will concede before we get started. But when I think about the money supply and I think about how money supply gets controlled by a central bank in a normal economy and I and with a fiat currency, and then I look at uh, Bitcoin, can you talk with me about how the supply works? Because you're talking about 900 new Bitcoin a day. Um, how does the 
for lack of a better term, how does the money supply work and, and how does it um, tie back into the notion of a digital currency instead of a currency monitored by or managed by a central bank? So the, the whole goal with Bitcoin, if you go and read the white paper that Satoshi wrote, uh, essentially, Bitcoin was meant to be a fully decentralized financial network that no one party could control. And therefore, nobody could control the issuance of the currency. And if you can issue more currency, you can essentially uh, cause it to be debased. And so the network itself determines how and when Bitcoins are issued. And there will only ever be 21 million Bitcoin ever produced. And we have already produced to date about 18.9 million Bitcoin. And of those 18.9 million Bitcoin, most probably 6 million of those were lost back in the early days when people were paying 10,000 Bitcoin for one of the trivia questions you asked. I won't give the answer. You know, it wasn't worth a whole lot. And so if you kept your keys on your hard drive, your keys to your digital wallet on your hard drive and your hard drive crashed, it was like, ah, I lost a couple hundred dollars worth of Bitcoin. It's no biggie. Then, you know, fast forward eight or nine years. And all of a sudden, if you had a thousand Bitcoin uh, in a wallet and the keys of the wallet are um, on a hard drive that's in a trash heap, you know, there are people who have paid trash companies to go look for that hard drive to try and rescue the keys. Sure. Well, at $44,000 a coin, uh, a thousand keys matters today. Yeah, absolutely. E even even to guys like you and me. Absolutely. <laughs> you know, the, the fact of the matter is that, you know, the, there is a finite quantity of Bitcoin. And so it's a supply and demand issue. As people uh, start transacting in Bitcoin as more companies start using it as more companies start holding it. You know, there are companies like MicroStrategy that sit on thousands and thousands of Bitcoin. You know, they have borrowed money, they have raised equity capital. And, you know, Michael Saylor is a huge proponent of Bitcoin and he puts his money where his mouth is. And they have, you know, at this point, I think closing on almost 100,000 Bitcoin, I think, if I'm not too far off. So he's one of the largest holders of, of Bitcoin out there. But then you have, you know, Tesla has a billion to a Bitcoin. Um, and, you know, even Marathon, we don't sell our Bitcoin, we hold it as many miners do. Most miners don't sell their Bitcoin these days. So you have no supply, no new supply going into the marketplace. So with scarcity, it drives price up. And the whole expectation is that uh, the price of Bitcoin will continue to go up over time as more and more people start using Bitcoin or use the Lightning Network like in El Salvador to do transactions, all those things require a certain amount of Bitcoin liquidity. And as investment funds start wanting to invest in Bitcoin, whether it's ETFs, whether it's uh, the Galaxy Fund, et cetera, which is one of the largest holders of Bitcoin uh, out there, I think they hold about $30 billion worth of Bitcoin at this point. Yeah, there's a scarce supply. And when there's a scarce supply, uh, it goes up in value. So as a store of value, um, you can kind of view it as like art. It's, you know, it's not backed by anything physical. It's not like there's a pile of diamonds or gold bars that you can get by trading into Bitcoin. 
but it has a value because of its scarcity and the fact that people attribute a value to it. Why is a Picasso painting worth what it's worth? Well, it's because people attribute a value to it, right? Right, right, right. Something is worth what someone will pay you for. It. That, that's it's that simple. Exactly. Right. You know, um, th that is what uh, determines something's worth. So, so you said something, Fred, that is news to me. I didn't understand it. Uh, Twenty-one million ever. 18.9 currently mined. If I just do the math quickly in my head, mm -hmm. that's about six and a, just under six and a half years uh, at 900 a day worth of mining left. What happens to the mining industry once we get to 21 million? Well, it, it's more complicated than that. Every four years, the number of Bitcoin issued per day drops by 50%. Oh, okay. So I got to redo my math. Okay. There will be Bitcoin issued until the year 2140. Okay. That's when the last Bitcoin will be issued. But there's sort of a half-life sense to it. It is It diminishes. Exactly. I got so in May of last year was the last halvening, as it's called. And at that prior to May of last year, 1,800 Bitcoin were issued per day. Uh, and at that point, it became 900. In the spring of 2024, it will go down to 450. In the spring, likely of 2028, it will go down to 225, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So, so, so how do you play the calculus, Fred? If if you've built this, not if you've built this um, significant mining business, and you're out there with a pool chasing 900 uh, Bitcoin a day, and that number is going to drop in 2024 to 450, is the calculus that the value of those coins in the future will be enough to offset the reduced opportunity to mine them? Well, if you look at the appreciation that Bitcoin has shown historically, and even just in the short term. Uh, it more than compensates for that. I got gotcha. you. Uh, okay. So it make, makes good financial sense. Got it. Um, got it. You know, I think if you look at where Bitcoin was at this time last year and look at where it is today, um, it certainly seems worth that. And if you then use uh, sort of average out the um, appreciation in Bitcoin over the past sort of 10 years on an annualized basis, uh, in theory, it should continue to do well. That being said, you know, like all markets, uh, Bitcoin will eventually reach a place in value where it, it kind of it achieves a, a maturity, if you would, and um, levels off. I see. So, so I'm in the United States. So when I see Bitcoin quoted, it's quoted in um, U U.S. dollars. Obviously, as a as a um, digital currency, you know, it can be in any other currency. Is is that normal? Is the Bitcoin viewed globally as a dollar denominated asset, or is it viewed as a digital asset purely expressed in local currency? People in the industry view it as a currency. That the IRS doesn't view it that way. They view it as a, an intangible asset, but. Um, because people who trade it view it as a currency. There are these things called trading pairs. So it's one Bitcoin to a dollar, one Bitcoin to a pound, one Bitcoin to a euro, one Bitcoin to a Swiss franc, uh, one Bitcoin to a Japanese yen, et cetera, et cetera. So you can trade Bitcoin against any fiat currency. I see. Uh, it's just going to be a different price quote, not unlike a British pound to a dollar, British pound to a euro, British pound to a Swiss franc, British pound to a Japanese. Yeah, yeah. Right, right. It's it's not a perfect, it, it, it can be expressed in relation to any other currency, just like fiat currencies are. Got right. it. Right. Got it. Yeah. Or gold. You know, gold is quoted in dollars, pounds, right. Swiss francs. Right, so, right, right. Fascinating. Okay. All right. This is, I'm, I'm, I'm learning a ton here, which I'm super grateful for. Um, so so as, we, as we keep motoring down this way, 
as I think about a miner, um, you, you mentioned earlier, and, I, and I'm not educated enough to know who makes the best actual mining devices. I'm not even sure. Is, is that what the best term for them, miners? Is that the, the actual compute device that does the calculation? Mm -hmm. um, I'm assuming there's multiple companies that produce the miners, and there are good. There, there are some that are better than others. Is that a fair assumption? Yes. I, I mean, today, our personal belief is that the uh, the Antminer S19 Pro, which is made by Bitmain, is the best machine. And you know what you have to realize is that the algorithm we're calculating uh, is based on an encryption standard called SHA-256, SHA-256. These mining rigs essentially are just massive calculators of this algorithm. And they require custom ASICs. So the companies that make these machines have to design their own ASICs, have them manufactured. You can't use standard off-the-shelf microprocessors or GPUs. Uh, Bitcoin requires much more calc power than that. And so you can't use a general purpose microprocessor at all. That was going to be my question. Just just, are they GPU based or standard microprocessor based? So no, they're there. It's its own um, specific uh, a logic to be able to handle this algorithm and calculate. Got it. Okay. And what's important from a miner's perspective is think of it like horsepowers with lawnmowers, right? You got a lawnmower, it's got a two and a half horsepower engine or a five horsepower engine. And that'll tell you how much strength it has, if you would. More importantly, though, for miners is what's the fuel economy of the engine? So what's the fuel economy of the miner? And the fuel that miners use is electricity. And so the question is, how many watts of electricity does it take for the miner to produce one horsepower? And in the world of Bitcoin mining, we call it how many watts of electricity does it take to produce one terahash? A terahash is essentially a million million calculations. I'm taking notes. Okay, a terahash. So yeah, so 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 I, I I like riding the bike, and it's watts to watts produced in power to kilowatts of the weight of the rider. This is exactly what you're saying. Yeah. Watts of the um, electricity consumed to uh, 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 problems solved as expressed in a terahash, a million millions of calculations. Correct. Got it. Okay. Uh -huh. All right. So the most efficient user has the best ratio, right? The guy that can produce the most calculations on the least amount of electricity. And then I guess the other input then is what you're paying for your electricity, right? That That's the other part of this exactly. equation is how much am I paying to get that watt of electricity to then do the calc for me? And what's the spread on my my machine, my building, uh, my electricity on the value of the, the um, hashes or, or coins that I can generate. All right. Mm -hmm. I'm, I'm starting to get the business a little. Yep. And, and so you have to wonder, you know, uh, like in the oil business or the gold business, uh, gold mining business, if you want to produce more gold or more oil, you just dig more wells because there's more in the ground. It doesn't work that way in Bitcoin because the network determines how many Bitcoin it's going to award. And it wants to award a constant 900 a day for right now. At the next halving, it'll be 450, as I talked about before. And to do that, it has it has to balance the load because if there are only two people mining, then the calculation is pretty simple. It's not very difficult. But if a million people are mining, then you need to make the calculation really hard because otherwise you're going to produce more than yeah. 900 Bitcoin a day. And so it's constantly adjusting the difficulty rate of the formula to make it harder the more people that mine. And if you think about it today, there are about a 
somewhere between a million and a half to two million mining rigs operating in the world and calculating the Bitcoin blockchain. And that number is growing at a very rapid rate. And so the difficulty rate, the amount of hash rate, if you would, that a miner has to have to maintain the number of Bitcoin they're earning on a daily basis has to go up commensurate with the overall growth of the network. And that's one of the beauties of the Bitcoin blockchain. It's continually balancing itself such that uh, A, only 900 Bitcoin are made a day. And more importantly, the uh, cost to mine Bitcoin essentially reaches a point where eventually it will not be profitable to mine Bitcoin because so many people have added capacity to the network that the difficulty rate has gotten so high. And because your electricity bill is, you know, you pay a fixed rate per watt of electricity that you pull out of the plug on the wall, um, eventually gets to the point where it may not be profitable for you to mine as a miner. You, you may pay too much for your electricity or something else. And so you drop out. And then as people drop out, the network becomes easier to mine again. It's constantly looking to balance itself. And that's one of the beauties of the Bitcoin blockchain. Yeah, I think I want to summarize what I think I heard you say is, hey, Raymond, there are more miners coming on. I think you said about two million today, one and a half to two million. As more miners come online, the... Uh, the, the the proofs, the algorithms get harder so as to manage the output of to, to, today 900 coins. And so, uh, I mean, just to make the math easy for me, if there's 2 million miners and you owned a half a million, you would theoretically get 25%. But if that 2 million went to 4 million, you're now getting 12.5%. And so it's adjusting the Correct. challenge. So the pool constantly adjusts, the blockchain adjusts for how much capacity is in the, for lack of a better term, the pool. I know there are pools, but in the total pool. Is that, is that, am I understanding it properly, Fred? Correct. Yeah. Got it. Got it. All right. I'm going to ask an, an esoteric question, I think. You said it adjusts. Um, so so um, the gentleman, uh, and I don't want to butcher his name, so I'm going to ask you to say his name again, the, the, the Japanese gentleman. Shitoshi. Satoshi. I'm never mm-hmm. going to, I'll eventually get it right. So Shitoshi builds this concept, writes this white paper, says, hey, I want a currency that people can't manipulate. And when you say uh, the blockchain adjust, who's running that today? Is there a company somewhere, an entity? What, what does, what's behind the blockchain? Um, when you say it adjusts, can you tell me what the it is? Again, think of a fully decentralized network. Satoshi didn't want any one organization, person, or body to be able to control the blockchain. So what happens is it's a consensus algorithm. So when a majority of the people who are mining agree on something, they can implement a change. And it's very hard to get everybody to agree. So therefore, there aren't many changes. So the way the software is written the software itself does all this automatically, and the software isn't controlled by one person, but the software runs on all the miners. And if miners ran different versions of the software, there would be a fork, meaning one group of miners running one software. Who, who wrote that original code, Fred? So it was, it was written by Satoshi and a group of other individuals. Uh, it's open source, so it's not owned by anybody. That was going to be my next question. I'm assuming it's open source. So they wrote it, published it, and everyone's got it. Okay. You, Yep. You can download it off the internet and bitcoin.org, I think, is where you can download it from. Put it on a computer and run your own node. 
um, and you're in business. Doesn't cost you anything for the software. It's open source, and essentially the network is make sure that everybody's running the same version of the software. So there's consensus, and uh, that's how it operates. It's it's an ingenious it's an ingenious mechanism. Now, the Ethereum network operates differently. There you have the Ethereum foundation and you have a core group of people who you know actually control it. So Ethereum is not decentralized in the way Bitcoin is. Ethereum is much more centralized. And with the shift to proof of stake, where the people who hold the most amount of Ether have the most say in what transactions are valid and which ones aren't, you have a re-centralization of control that is no different than banks. So if the purpose, if your purpose in um, you know, building a blockchain is to move away from the type of control where you know, uh, one individual could potentially approve or disapprove a transaction at their whim, if you would, um, then that's a centrally controlled system. And, you know, with proof of stake, the Ethereum network is moving more towards that model because the largest stakeholders will be the people who hold the most Ether, and those will be Coinbase and the big exchanges as well as the banks. Um, And so we're just, we're not achieving at all what the uh, original ethos, if you would, of um, Bitcoin and uh, cryptocurrencies were designed to be. So Ethereum is a great network, however, for the development of applications. It's super easy to write an application to run on the Ethereum network, and that's what it's great for. It's great for innovation and creating these all these DeFi platforms that you see being built on Ethereum. Uh, it's, it's a great way to develop those, test them, and build them out. Now, you could argue that because it's an innovation sandbox, whereas the Bitcoin blockchain is this very you know rugged, if you would, and highly secure, highly decentralized system. You know, if you read in the press on a weekly basis, you'll see there are a lot of applications built on the Ethereum blockchain that have hacks. They get bugs. You know, even the London fork of Ethereum. Uh, you know, before it was released, they discovered bugs where somebody could have issued an infinite amount of ether to themselves. Um, so, you know, the Bitcoin blockchain. There are no bugs in it. It's been operating for twelve years. Um, you know, there's a major update uh, called Taproot, which is being implemented right now, which essentially gives the Bitcoin blockchain all of the same you know benefits that Ethereum has in the way of smart contracts, multi-signature, etc. And it's I, I personally believe that the Bitcoin blockchain is where you're going to see most financial institutions and anybody who is building an application, whether it's a uh, an online MLS, personal identity, health data. If you want to make sure that data is secure and that that network is going to operate um, flawlessly, then the Bitcoin blockchain is the place to do that. I mean, think about it. China shut down all mining in China. About 50% of the mining for Bitcoin in the world was done in China, and the Bitcoin blockchain didn't have a hiccup. Oh, wow. Half the compute disappeared. That's incredible. Well, I guess picked up and moved, right? Didn't have a hiccup. Yeah. Well, yes, picked up and moved, and it's not fully moved yet. But regardless, you know, no central government can attack the Bitcoin blockchain and shut it down because you have to shut down all of the miners everywhere. Yeah, that the, the decentralization, back to uh, Shatoshi's idea of no one controlling, no one government or one entity, that, that's some brilliance in that. Yep. So, so, so I, I, I do want to come back to the China question, but I, I want to get one more that's burning in my brain. 
so, so I've got this digital currency. Uh, I'm part of this blockchain where all the blocks are confirmed and the network nodes all have to agree. I love understanding how that works. But um, I see Bitcoin expressed in dollars. I know I live in the US and we talked about trading pairs. Mm -hmm. It's interesting to me when I talk to friends about investing in Bitcoin, they talk about their Bitcoin in terms of dollars. But I think, th does that miss the point a little, Fred? Hel help me think about that a little. Is, is Bitcoin as, a, as, a, as an exchange of value itself instead of having Bitcoins and then going off and trading them for another currency? Um, I, I know that's sort of a weird way of trying to ask a question, but help me think through that the appropriate way. It has its own, sure. it's, it's, it's its own, for lack of a better term, currency, but it also gets expressed in fiat currency. What's the right way to think about it? You have to think about what is the purpose of money? The purpose of money is that two people agree on a unit of value such that you can price things uh, in a way uh, and exchange things without having to do traditional yeah, barter. Get me out of the so barter system. If I'm a farmer yeah, here, here. and I have yes. eggs, right? Right. If, if, I'm, if I'm a farmer and I make eggs and you're a farmer who has milk and we need chickens, you're going to trade milk, I'm going to trade eggs, right? That's how right. it's going to yeah. work. But if you have money instead, then you know that, okay, eggs are priced at a certain number of right. units per dollars and milk is priced at a certain dollars. And so you and I have a medium of exchange that we both trust and agree on. The problem is if that is a fiat currency issued by a government, the value of that dollar, if you would, can go up and down based on how many dollars they print and uh, you know how the um, economy of that country is going. So it's not in control of the farmers, uh, the value of that dollar. And so as the farmers in time of inflation, if the food you feed your chickens or the grain you feed your cows as the dairy farmer, goes up in price, you're going to raise the price of your product. And so that's how you get inflation. And that dollar becomes worth less, not worthless, it becomes worth less. And so you can look at the price of Bitcoin and say, okay, Bitcoin is $40,000 today. It was $30,000 yesterday. Is that because Bitcoin is increasing in value or is it because the dollar is right, decreasing right, in value? Right. And that that whole um, back to your comment of the barter eggs and, and milk and 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 uh, the, is the value of the dollar worth less? I love that it, it, it's it's back to our money supply central bank question, right? Are they put are they putting more money in the in the economy? Right. Is the economy growing and expanding on its own? Does the money supply keep up with the growth of the economy? Is the economy shrinking? Is the money supply shrinking commiserately? Right. It, 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 there's all these multi-nuanced factors that in, uh, increase or decrease the value of the currency uh, and, and everybody else tries to keep their goods in line. Um, and, and, and yeah, it's, it's a way to trade without trading things, but rather trade stores of value. And Bitcoin can be just that. Yep. All right, let's, 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 go back, let's go back to China. What was behind the decision by the Chinese government to shut down all mining in China? China is a country with uh, currency controls, meaning you can't easily take uh, your renminbi and send them to a bank in the U.S. back in the, uh, you know, a uh, few decades ago when, you know, they started opening up the economy, uh, people would essentially move money offshore by buying real estate assets or companies would acquire other companies. And then they started shutting that down because so much money was, and, you know, part of the reason was people wanted to hold their assets offshore. 
And so when Bitcoin came along, all of a sudden, it was the perfect vehicle for moving money offshore because you invest in some mining equipment or a mining company, you get paid in Bitcoin, does Bitcoin go in a wallet, that wallet is in control, and you effectively have your money outside of the financial system. And anytime you wanted to deposit fiat in a foreign bank, you simply sold your Bitcoin uh, on an yeah. exchange outside of China, and it was deposited in a foreign bank. So um, that was one now, of the reasons. The other, now I'm, the now other I'm getting why the Chinese didn't like it. I get that one clearly. Yeah, yeah. okay. So if you have all these very wealthy billionaires, and uh, by the way, there are a number of party officials in China also were quite large holders of Bitcoin. And that's really just based on the, the uh, patriarchal system that exists in China. So if you're a Bitcoin miner, you had to get effectively tacit permission to mine and you had to buy power. And power was being provided by the provincial power utility. Typically, the provincial power utility was uh, somehow controlled by somebody who had a friend in the Politburo. So there was this cycle of kind of, let's just say it, the profits tended to flow. You know, for Premier Xi, the, the issue in, in China was, uh, you know, he's very much against corruption. He's very much against this type of favoritism. And he wants to control the economy in a way such that he can direct investment in areas that he wants and have the ability to put their money in Bitcoin and have it outside of government control was uh, he viewed as a threat. And so the e yuan, which is the digital currency that the Chinese government has, is a way to even further control the economy. Because now think about uh, the government, what you have in your wallet, they can say, it, you know, oh, gosh, guess what? All the money in your wallet disappeared because your social score is bad because you wrote something online that you shouldn't have done. And therefore, we're going to fine you and we're just going to garnish your wallet. It's kind of like the IRS going after money in your wallet. And so Bit Bitcoin was an anathema to them. And so they couldn't just stop the trading in Bitcoin because most Bitcoin trading actually happens outside of China. They had to stop the mining, the creation of the Bitcoin in China, because that was how most Chinese acquired Bitcoin. I got they that, essentially that, invested in, in Bitcoin mining. Makes, makes perfect Bitcoin sense. Bitcoin from miners, yeah. Well, Fred, um, this has been an awesome 45 minutes. I frankly, I don't know what your team and schedule would be willing to do, but we'd love to have you talk more. This has been more educational than I ever could have hoped. It's awesome. Um, you know, I hope our listeners enjoy and understand a little bit more about crypto and blockchain and uh, you know uh, all of the things that, uh, w whether it's Ethereum and the other coins as well, just super, super helpful. I took a ton of notes. I really appreciate you recording with us and would love to have you talk again. Um, it's just been great and I appreciate you doing it, especially uh, late in the evening where you are. So thank you for that. Happy to come back anytime. Awesome.